Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, it's Jason Greenblatt from The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm here with part two of my interview with Emily Schrader and Yusuf Haddad from Headlines with the Haddads. I got some great feedback on part one. The only complaint I got is I left sort of a cliffhanger. Well, the interview was just too long to package in one show. We had so much to talk about, primarily relating to Arab society and Israel, the Abraham Accords, and so much more. Take a listen. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. So we spoke about Mansour Abbas. Um, Tell me who he is, what he represents, and is he authentic in your view? So, Mansour Abbas is uh, the leader of the Islamic movement in, uh, in uh, the political party in, 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 the, in Israel. Now, what's so amazing is that he was part of the joint list. So the joint list itself, there were four, they are four, they were, they were four, four political parties. After the fact that um, Mansour Abbas saw that the leaders of each political party from the joint list are not working for the Arab-Israeli society, he decided to get out of the uh, joint list and run by himself. The interesting thing is that he just said, I'm putting nationalism out, all the talk about Palestine, Palestinians, I'm putting it out, and I'm only going to speak on how I'm going to make my society, the Arab citizen of Israel, make them much better. And it worked for him. You know, he's an Islamic movement representative, yet Christians voted for him. And the reason why Christians also voted for him, they saw him as a leader that will work and represent the interest of the Arab society. And in fact, despite that the joint list with six seats in the parliament and he's with four, he's actually the biggest Arabic political party. Why? Because the joint list now is three political parties and they have three seats, two seats and one seat. So he is with four seats, the biggest Arab political party. Now, he made some serious and historical steps, also saying in Arabic and in English as well, and in Hebrew, that uh, Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. And if anybody thinks that it's going to change, then uh, those sell only illusions. That's a good step because selling illusions is one of the best things that the joint list did. Even the left, the Jewish in the, in the Jewish society, the majority of them, they agree on the definition a Jewish democratic state. So the majority, the absolute majority of the Jewish society will not change that. And for the leaders of the joint list to think that, that is exactly what's keeping us from moving forward. I, I'm just going to finish it with Mansour Abbas did huge steps forward. Still between me and Mansour Abbas, there is a gap in the ideology. Because I'm waiting for him to do that extra step, condemning Hamas and saying, yes, Hamas is a terrorist organization. The minute he do that, I think I am, the gaps is, you know, smaller and smaller between me and him, ideologically. In the future, 
we are looking for an Arab-Israeli political party that works for the interests of both the Arabs and, in general, the Israelis. And that's the most important thing that we're looking in the future. I was just going to add, based on your comments about the joint list, that, again, to bring this full circle, it comes to the anti-normalization thing. You see it in some of the leaders of the joint list, that they focus so long on not accepting Israel, on not accepting, frankly, reality on the ground. And that got them nowhere. It got the Palestinians nowhere. It got Israeli society and the peace process nowhere. It got the Israeli Arab society nowhere. So really nobody wins with anti-normalization. Nobody. Let me say this. My, My other son, Noah, and I, my guess is we're probably one of the few in the world who are in the line of fire when terrorists, in this case from Yemen, Houthi terrorists, fired rockets in Riyadh. But I was also in the line of fire when terrorists, Hamas, fired rockets towards Israel. I was in Tel Aviv. When I was in Tel Aviv that night, I was in a restaurant, and we had to leave the restaurant um, itself and go into the stairwell, which was the safe area. And you mentioned this. What struck me was in this uh, stairwell area, there were Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs, and they were all scared, and they were, you know, some of the women were crying, some of the Jewish women, some of the Arab women. And I think people don't realize that when these terrorists attack, they're attacking everybody. Uh, and I also say that the Palestinians are also in danger. You know, everybody's talking about Iran, the danger to Iran, the, sorry, the danger from Iran. If Iran were to attack, whether it's Israel, the UAE, or otherwise, Palestinians suffer from that too. So I view this conflict as a, a conflict between good and evil. Do you see it differently? I see it in a way of, um, uh, you know what, I can answer you in a, in a story. I participated in... Uh, the Second Lebanon War. I was in. I was I was in Binjbel. Just before I entered Lebanon, one of my friends from Nazareth, he called me and he said to me, Yusuf, how do you feel going uh, to fight your Arab brothers? And I said... Sorry, was it a Jewish or... No, 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 from Nazareth, an Arab. An Arab. A classmate from high school. And I told him, I'm not fighting my uh, Arab brothers. I'm fighting a terrorist organization. I'm fighting Hezbollah. And this is how the conversation ended. We didn't agree. Obviously, he's my friend, so he wished me that uh, you know I, I go back, uh, come back safe. I didn't. I, I got injured very badly in the Second Lebanon War when I ha- was hit by an anti-tank missile. I have uh, shrapnels all over my body. My foot was cut off. We attached again by the best doctors, Arabs and Jews. And I was a, a year in rehabilitation uh, in, in the hospital. And he came to visit me in the hospital. Do you know what the first thing he told me? He said, I get it. And he said that because during the Second Lebanon War, 44 civilians were killed by Hezbollah missiles. Half of them were Arab Muslims. And when I was there, I wasn't only defending the Jewish society. I was fighting and defending the Arab society and the Jewish society. I was fighting for my society, the Israeli society, my country. Emily, you want to add something? I was just going to add that in the last round of fighting that we saw in May, actually one of, I think it was the first casualty from Hamas rockets in Gaza was an Arab Muslim girl. And the father, right. Um, These were among the first victims of the last round of fighting. And it's interesting because in May we also saw some 
internal conflict uh, with Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews, clashes within certain cities. Um, and this was all over the news. You know, they talked about it all the time, how, oh, look, the Israeli Arabs are, are rising up with Palestinian, their Palestinian brothers and sisters. But the reality is that this was a tiny minority of two million citizens. The majority of Israeli Arabs wanted nothing to do with this, nothing. It's that it's a tiny, vocal, aggressive, often violent minority who are threatening the other people from speaking up. And I think it's really, really important to put that in context that the majority, not majority, all of the Israeli Arab society, just as the Israeli Jewish society, was under threat from Hamas rockets, from radical terrorists in the Gaza Strip. Regardless of what the religion of these Israelis were, they were all under threat together. Um, and so even when we talk about what happened in May, it's really, really important to emphasize that this was a tiny minority. Unfortunately, that's still a significant group of people, and there were really, really awful, upsetting incidents of violence and rioting. Um, but it's a minority, and we have to we have to continue to speak out for the silent minority who wants to live silent together. Majority. Silent, majority. silent majority, right? I'm really glad you raised that, Emily, because as an American, because now I'm not in government, so I don't get the full breadth of information that I used to get when I worked at the White House. Reading the newspapers, my conclusion was that it was, I don't want to say all of Israeli Arab society, that would be a stretch, but it was not only terrible, but there were lots of Israeli Arabs doing this. So I'm glad you raised that. Yusuf, what was your perspective about that? And what's your, real, what's your message to um, the American audience, the international audience of what happened then? And, and I'm really glad that we're talking about this subject. This is one of the subjects that I bring in every lecture that I come, whether it's in the Arab society or in the Jewish society. And I asked a simple question, the Arabs or the Jews? How many Arabs participated in, in, in those riots? And how many Jews participated in, in those riots? I asked that to the Arab audience or to the Jewish audience. And you can see that they, are, they, don't, uh, they don't have the same information. Some says a thousand, some says a hundred, some says tens of thousands, some says a hundred of thousands. And in reality, it was few thousands in, in the Arab side and few couple of thousands in, 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 in the Jewish side. And I always say... Do you want to generalize 7 million Jews because of a few hundreds or, or a couple of thousands? Do you want to generalize 2 million Arabs because of a few thousands? Because this is the reality. And my message to the people who are outside of Israel, you know, one of the things that everyone is trying to do is just getting lies and, and misfacts on my back. You want really to understand what's going on? Come and ask the people here. A, a, a year ago, there was a huge, one of the most, uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, civilian disaster in Israel, in Har Miron, in Miron Mountain, where uh, 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 religious Orthodox Jews uh, were crushed, uh, and uh, uh, because of uh, uh, overcrowded uh, audience, and because it was Shabbat. They couldn't go back home in time. Arab Israelis opened their houses for them to host them for Shabbat in order for them to keep Shabbat. During the corona pandemic, Arabs and Jews, doctors, nurses, all of them worked so hard together. Here in Jerusalem, a year ago, there was a huge fire. Sorry, even half a year ago, there was a huge fire. People needed to run away from their houses. My city, Nazareth, 
open the, the, the hotels and the houses for Jewish families to go and, 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 and have three, four days in Nazareth just to breathe, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, fresh air. This is something normal happened here. But the simple fact is that in the Western world, they have no clue. Because if you see on the social media and if you see on the media, what they are trying to elevate is the bad things. Because bad and saying it Bahal Yahud, which killed the Jews, or Mavit Laravim, which is death to Arabs, that generate click bites. That boosts rating. And that's why we need to fight that. So, Yusuf, I think you're right. Unfortunately, again, my, my information now is limited to the media. And I never read or hear about stories like that. So I'm really glad we're doing this podcast. I think more of this has to come so out. So following up on what you were talking about, Yusuf, um, another, another group that we see latching onto this narrative of it being all the Arabs engaging or all the Jews engaging in, in what we saw in May in the Amnesty Report. Again, we saw similar uh, rhetoric with them talking about May and what happened in last May, almost in a positive way, talking about how uh, there was a strike and that the Palestinian, what they called Palestinian citizens of Israel, which is Israeli Arabs, were rising up with the Palestinians, when in fact the Israeli Arabs were under threat from Palestinian terrorists the entirety of that time. And the strike, which they actually referenced in the report, uh, was a strike led by uh, extremists in the Israeli Arab society, the, the loud minority, as I mentioned before, who actually threatened Israeli Arabs who refused to take part. There was a nurse who actually was physically assaulted because she went to work that day by the extremists. So, again, it was a minority of, of Israeli Arabs who, who took part in this strike uh, in protest of the Israeli government who were, who were attacked. Yeah. So following on that, so the media in Israel even didn't cover it as it should. And they, they, they covered it as, oh, the Arab society is standing with Gaza, with Hamas. I got messages from... Arabs, who who knows me and know my 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 uh, my uh, you know about my activity as a as a uh, activist, social activist, uh, and, uh, and 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 as a journalist as well, they sent me WhatsApp messages, getting threat, being threatened. If you go to work, we will hurt you. Someone else, if you open your office, we will burn that office. So. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate, I'm lucky to have a very strong social media uh, with uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with almost a uh, uh, quarter million followers. So when I posted that, suddenly it became a thing in the Israeli media as well, and they start covering the other side. But until someone didn't, look, until I did it, nobody talked about it. And then you realize, oh, okay, here we go. There's a different story, a different narrative. And did they not talk about it because they don't get it, they don't understand it, or they just felt it wasn't important enough? Or it goes it, 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 definitely, it's not about not important enough. It is important. Yeah, I think you're right on that. I think it's also an issue of in the media on all topics today. There tends to be a lack of nuance because nuance is, is hard to understand. It takes more time to explain. It takes more research. It takes more effort to understand a complex issue. And obviously, this is a very complex issue. And when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there's a lot of media bias. And they want to paint one side as good and one side as evil. And it's not always that way. There's a lot more underlying issues. There's a lot of complex factors that play into it. Um, and I think that we saw that with this issue as well. You know, we, we wanted to... The, 
media wanted to be able to say that the Arabs are doing X and that's not really the case. Um, and uh, you reminded me of something when, when you were talking that actually a similar thing happened in Gaza that uh, Palestinian business owners were threatened by Hamas, which is the terrorist organization that controls Gaza. Um, and there was uh, footage, not footage, but recording that was leaked of phone calls of business owners, even on, on calls with the IDF, when they were saying, you need to evacuate the building because Hamas is using that building and we're going to bomb it. And they were saying, what can we do? <laughs> what can we do? They're, they're, they want us to stay. They're telling us to stay. Uh, there were a which bus company. They want us to die. Uh, exactly. There was a bus company uh, in the, the Great March of Return, they called it, when there were riots. On the Gaza on the Gaza border, and the the bus driver was threatened by Hamas. They said, "If you don't provide transportation for thousands of protesters to go attack Israeli forces on the border, we will kill you." And and he, I don't know if it was him or someone else that leaked this phone call of Hamas calling him and threatening him. So a lot of times, there there are innocent people who want to live in peace, who are not interested in conflict, who are caught in the middle by the extremists who are controlling the situation. And we saw it, unfortunately, with some of the Israeli Arab society in May, and we see it in Gaza frequent every every time there's a flare up of something, we see this with Hamas. That's how they operate. So that's why I'm really glad you have your show headlines with Haddad's. That's why I do the Diplomat. Because we have to go beyond the clickbait, beyond the headlines, beyond you know short stories and understand the nuance, the complexity, have some real voices on the ground. So let's chat for a little bit about racism here in Israel. One of the things that I find extremely ugly has to do with uh, what is an amazing soccer team, Beitar Jerusalem. But there's a group, La Familia I think they're called, who are extremely anti-Arab and do some pretty ugly things. Tell me about that, and tell me, if you had the opportunity to sit with them, what your message would be to them. Okay, first of all, um, again, we need to understand that Betar Jerusalem uh, has a huge crowd. And La Familia and those who are racist are, again, minority. And it was proven by the majority of the fans that they protested against La Familia. But, but it's so easy for the media to represent Bitar and to draw Bitar as La Familia and as that voice of uh, a racist uh, uh, crowd. It is not like this. Yes, they are minority like that. And, uh, and for me, I mean, listen, um, there was a sentence said by uh, Yitzhak Rabin, uh, former prime minister, uh, before he was uh, killed. He said, peace we do with enemies, not with friends. I say, bridging gaps you do with someone you have gap with, not with your friend or with someone you don't have gap with. I have gaps with those people. I want to sit down with them. And in fact, I sit down with them. I speak to groups of people who are actually consider themselves being racist against Arabs. They even said that to me. If I can affect only one of them, that's already a huge accomplishment because that person will end up getting married, having kids, and then instead of making them a bigger group, then I'm actually doing something the opposite. And, and, and that's what, what's happening today, by the way. Uh, uh, I'll share with you a story about the first activity of our organization, Together Without for Each Other, which is an Arab-Israeli organization that works to bridge gaps between Jews and Arabs. The first activity that we did was coming to Jerusalem from the north, from Rahat, from, from Rahat in the south, from Nazareth and Yaffa in the north and Shfaram. We came 
to Jerusalem here and participate in an anti uh, against anti-Semitism, a protest against anti-Semitism. We were the largest group there. And I had the honor to actually speak at that protest. And when I went up, I said, Marhaba, which is hello. We came from Nazareth, from this and this and this, from the Arab and the, uh, you know, uh, uh, towns and villages. People were shocked. What's going on here? And then they looked at the group because we were holding the sign of the organization, everything, they saw that we as a group came, we were the biggest group. And people asked me, why? Why as an Arab organization, why as an Arab you decided to come to protest against anti-Semitism? And I say, it's because what happened after. Few hours after the protest, I was already in my house when I got tens of messages from Jewish protesters. And the message was plus minus the same thing. I'm a racist. I hate Arabs. But when I saw you guys protesting against anti-Semitism, shoulder to shoulder with us, I felt idiot to be a racist. I, all my life I was chanting death to Arabs. You showed me something else. You showed me that I shouldn't be a racist. You changed me and that was plus minus the same message in all those messages that I got. That's how you make effect. That's how you change people's mind. Not by coming to them and, you know, uh, uh, cursing them back. And if they say death to Arabs, you say death to Jews. No, this is not the, uh, the way. It's by powering and elevating the silent voice that is scared from those uh, uh, violent minority. And don't think that I'm not getting threat. I get threats every day. I get threats every day. But because of the fact that I know that there's a lot of people that supporting me behind the scenes, and today it's becoming even uh, 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 publicly, you get that power to move on and continue. So definitely I would speak with them. Definitely I would try to um, uh, uh, show them the reality and what's going on because a person who is an anti-Semi and a person who is a racist, there's only one definition for him. Ignorant. Ignorant. Point. And the only way to deal with ignorance, educating. Educating them. That's why I will speak to everyone. And if some of them will not understand, some of them will not, don't want to understand, but those who will, that's a huge success. So here I just want to give a shout out to Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> why? She made a very ignorant comment about the Holocaust on her show, The View. But I have to thank her. Why? Because I did a special episode, two episodes actually, about Whoopi Goldberg. One guest on that episode was Daniela Greenbaum, who wrote a really important opinion piece in the Washington Post and was kind enough to join the show. And Daniela introduced me to you. So uh, thank you, Whoopi Goldberg, for allowing us to have this great conversation on a patio overlooking the old city in Jerusalem. I think Whoopi Goldberg also uh, brought up an opportunity to talk about one of the issues that's becoming more and more of an issue in the United States, which is categorizing Jews as white um, in the conversation, in the context of intersectionality. Um, I think that this is a really a really dangerous line of thinking, and you see exactly why, because of comments like Whoopi Goldberg, when she goes on, you know, goes on The View and says that, oh, well, the, uh, 
the Holocaust wasn't about race. It was about two, two groups of white people fighting each other. Um, I guess, you know, there's probably millions of, millions of Jewish people throughout history who would have liked to be categorized as that because they wouldn't have been murdered for that. But uh, throughout history, Jewish people have been, have been killed because they weren't white or weren't white enough or weren't what the majority was wherever they were. Um, and so it's a very, uh, very ignorant very ignorant thing to say and uh, comes from this whole woke push that we see uh, that we see in the West right now. But ironically, the people who are pushing that narrative are the same people who are categorizing uh, Israeli Arabs as Palestinians. Uh, they are the, the same people, the groups like Amnesty, like uh, JVP I mentioned earlier, are the same people who are trying to define the identity of Israeli Arabs instead of actually listening to them. So we see a lot of hypocrisy from these groups. And I think in a way, in a sort of twisted way, we have to be uh, be grateful to, to Whoopi, as you mentioned, for bringing this issue to light and actually giving the uh, Jewish community and allies an opportunity to speak about this issue and to draw more attention to it because it's a very, very important topic and, and the consequences of not understanding it as we see now with the rise of anti-Semitism in the U.S. and also, of course, on social media uh, can be deadly. You know, since the ugliness that happened in May of last year, I could be wrong, but I am quite sure that I started to see in the mainstream media that they were describing Israeli Arabs as Palestinian. And I thought... Is that um, a misunderstanding? Has the movement changed now? Are Israeli Arabs identifying as Palestinian? But in listening to both of you, it seems that the mainstream media either has a terrible agenda or completely misunderstand this, 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 um, this society. I think you nailed it. This is it. The, the, the media wants to go in, in, a, in a way and to present a way of uh, thought and for them, this is it. Without giving the other side, you know, a possibility to, you know, uh, to hear their, their voices. This is why a lot of anti-Israeli organizations and BDS movements will not debate me. This is why, uh, and it happens, yeah? This is why also the political uh, leaders here in the uh, Israeli Arab society won't debate me. It happens live on TV in, in, in Channel 12, where Ahmed Tibi, one of the uh, leaders and, uh, and most experienced politician, not just in the Arab society, in the Israeli society, literally just got up live on air and ran away once he saw that I am on the studio. We have that live. Ran away. That's ran, ran away. Unbelievable. And the same thing for I'm I... Si I'm sitting with you. I'm <laughs> Listen, it's crazy. I, 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 I was shocked. And I'm like, while he's going out, I'm like, I understand why you ran away. You don't want to give my voice a platform. You don't want to give my voice a chance because you are scared of that. So he's not likely to be a guest on The Diplomat, I take it. <laughs> you know what? If you, if you manage to do that, I would... I would be very, very surprised, <laughs> to be honest with you. I would be very surprised. Um, but here's the thing, you know, that's, that's the craziest thing. I, I know we haven't talked about it yet. Um, and it's the issue of being able to speak, being able to be in a, democ in a democracy, which allows me not only to speak freely, but also to criticize my country. And speaking about criticizing my country, you see that 
with those which country Palestine <laughs> <laughs> well exactly you know it's you, you kind of like like uh, uh, in volleyball you you prepared the ball for a landing <laughs> for me because um, uh, unlike uh, uh, what happened uh, what's happening in Palestine is that um, I mean how, how many how many how many of you do you think how many of, of the Western world have heard about Nizar Banat very few I'm sure So Nizar Banat is a political uh, activist in the West Bank and a journalist. And he criticized the Palestinian Authority. Now what happened to him, do you know? I think he was put in jail, but beyond that, I don't know. He's dead. What happened? They killed him. For criticizing. They killed him. So anyone who comes and talks to me about apartheid, about... Uh, oppression I would just look at them and say you hypocrites people in Gaza and in the West Bank are dying because they criticized either Hamas or the Palestinian Authority dying I as an Arab can say what I want and in fact there is members of Knesset Arab members speaking against Israel within the walls of the Knesset And you guys, talking about opp uh, oppression, freedom of speech, are you kidding me? So, maybe some of the Arab leaders in, uh, in my society wants to silence me, but my country allows me to speak and speak out loud. Unfortunately for the Palestinians, political activists, journalists, they're not. They don't have that option. You speak against Hamas, in the good case, you end up in jail. The worst, you're dead. Same thing in the Palestinian Authority. Just Google Nizar Banat. Listen to his story. That's the reality. So, stop. Stop this conversation without knowing what you're talking about. And, and, and I'm speaking about those people who are ignorant when it comes to this conflict and to what's going on here. And this, this, you see me, I'm emotional because, you know, I, I, it, it comes from my heart. This is like the message for everyone. Well, and you guys are the right messenger to, uh, to take this to the public because so few people get it, understand it, even hear about it, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. So... Let me ask you another question. If you're from Nazareth, you say, if, and you see I wear a kippah. If I went to Nazareth with you and wanted to do this podcast with a bunch of your friends, would I be welcome there? Would I get hate there? What do you think would happen? When you were coming. <laughs> When you were coming. If you guys weren't going out of town, I'd come on Sunday. I'll tell you, I'll tell you like this. First of all, you're more than welcome, and we will find you a kosher restaurant. Uh, that's a promise. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, obviously there's a lot of tourists in Nazareth. It's a historical city. It's very important to Christianity. So there's a lot of tourists, despite the fact that there have been less lately because of Corona. Um, but yeah, no, Nazareth is really a beautiful, beautiful city. One of the things I, I guess, was surprised about, even though I'm consider myself pretty knowledgeable, I'm also Israeli, um, that there's a lot of uh, soldiers 
a lot of soldiers in uniform. Um, many of them are Arab themselves. They serve, they volunteered to serve in the IDF. And I don't know why I kind of expected, and I actually mentioned this to you so if, uh, when we saw one on the street, I kind of expected there to be maybe some animosity or maybe that because of the minority, but some of the extremists who are in some of the Arab communities, that maybe they would be apprehensive about walking around in uniform, just as sometimes occurs maybe in East Jerusalem. Um, but no, that's not the case in Nazareth at all. I mean, you see Jews and Arabs in IDF uniform walking around, you know, as normal anywhere else in the country. So it's really, uh, really a nice city and you have to come. <laughs> so in August, I hope I'll be here again with my family. Uh, Nazareth was not on our to-do list. It is now. So awesome, uh, awesome. But you, you, uh, allow me also to add two more points. One, during the holidays, December, then you really should come to Nazareth and see this. You would see a Christmas tree, okay, and next to it, Hanukkah. Um, how do you say it in English? Hanukkah, uh, menorah. In Nazareth to celebrate holidays. And Jews are coming to celebrate and to, to, to see Christmas because this is the best place beside Jerusalem. In fact, I'm a little biased. I think Nazareth is even much better. better. Um, yeah, it's better. Yeah, it's more beautiful in Nazareth. <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, come. Come see it for your own eyes and everyone will understand and realize that this myth about, the, oh, Jews cannot enter Arab cities. or the, it's, it's not. Sophia, every last question for you. You know, we've done, thank God, a lot of traveling throughout the world, certainly a lot in Israel. I've never taken you to Nazareth. Are you in? Yes, definitely. I'd love to see it. I'd be very excited to go. Yalla. I, I say yalla. <laughs> last question for each of you, if you can please. Um, it's such a unique conversation that we're having. The location is unique. I want you to try to give some a parting message not only to Israeli Arabs, Israeli Jews, but also to Palestinians and the region um, about your hopes for the future. You're both young. One of the reasons I was so excited to work on this project um, of peace is that the society in this region is filled with young people and deserves a much, much better future. What's your message of hope? Well, I think that one of the things that was so amazing about the Abraham Accords is it really brought up a new way of thinking and it gave a lot of hope and inspiration to a younger generation that has been largely disillusioned with the status quo in terms of negotiations or lack thereof and what the progress has been between Israeli and the Palestinians and Israel and the entire region. So in that regard, we have a new era. We have the groundwork for something really, really meaningful and powerful. And it's not just for other Arab states. It's also for the Palestinians. And some of the work that we're doing with Together Vouch for Each Other, working to integrate Israeli Arabs more in the community, make them feel more a part of it, and also make the understanding of Israel and Israeli society not just something that is the Jewish state, which it is, of course, but Jewish and democratic, that the Arab community is an integral part of the state of Israel, and we want that. The more that they're integrated, the more that they feel like they're a part of this society, the more they're going to have that sense of belonging and also have that sense of defending and protecting the state. And who better to advocate for the state of Israel with Palestinians, with other Arab neighbors, than Israeli Arabs who are integrated, who are a part of this society. The more we can create that sense of belonging as the state of Israel, 
as Israelis, whether Arab or Jewish, the better off we're going to be internally and externally. And I think that that will lay a really, really beautiful groundwork for cooperation with Palestinians as well in their own state in the future. So I'm very, very hopeful about the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. We'll see. We'll see what happens. And I hope that one day, you know, we can sit at the King David with Palestinians as well. So... What Emily said is very important. I think that the Arab Israelis are the key for uh, the progress in the uh, peace uh, agreement between uh, Palestinians and uh, Israel. Uh, I really believe in that. I really believe that once the Arab society is fully integrated in the Israeli society, once we are in the highest offices representing the interests of Israel as well as the Arab Israeli society, I think that uh, we can, uh, you know, um, advance toward uh, peace. We are the key to end this conflict. And we are going to work on that for the next few years in order to put us in a position uh, actually to be that key. Um, I'm hopeful. Otherwise, I wouldn't do what I'm doing today. I really believe that we can uh, shift the talk from what it is today with the Abraham Accords, it was a huge boost for me and for my organization and the people who believe in our agenda. Uh, and and uh, we are very, very thankful for that. Uh, I mean it. I mean, you have no idea in terms of the Arab society how much it was important for us because it actually boosts what exactly we spoke about in the last four or five years. So we're going to keep working on that because eventually we believe that it is possible to end that conflict. It is possible to have a, a peace agreement here between the Palestinians and the Israelis and we will work for that. We will work for that as hard as, as much as possible because we have to. We must. Because we have to. Yeah, that's, that's key. So Emily and Yusuf, thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to our next conversation, which I think will be equally as long, if not longer. I wish you tremendous success on your new show, Headlines with the Haddads. And uh, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. What a conversation with Emily and Yusuf. I learned a lot. I hope you learned a lot. Do share this and my other podcasts with your friends and family and colleagues. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at GreenblattJD. And please order, or pre-order, I should say, my book, which is coming out in June. It is available now for pre-order on Amazon, In the Path of Abraham. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.